1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Coming and welcome to the Heritage Foundation in our Lehrman Auditorium. I just want to ask you to check to make sure your phones are either off or in silence mode. You can leave them on in silent if you want to live tweet the event, but make sure they're silent. Um, You're in for a wonderful treat, so I'm glad to see so many of you are here. I'm actually worried about where I'm going to sit for this discussion. (laughs) Um, Let's get started. Sex matters. Depending on how you emphasize and pronounce each word, you might have a title that suggests a book on sexual matters or a title that suggests a book on why and how these sexual matters matter. Or you might have a title that suggests both. The word sex itself has an ambiguous meaning. Does it refer to our sexed identity as male or female? Or does it refer to our sexual relationships? Or does it refer to both? Rejecting false dichotomies, Mona Sharon takes up all of these matters in her new book, Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense. In it, Mona shows how worthy goals of women's equality gave way to a faulty notion of a war between the sexes and an androgynous form of feminism that seeks sameness instead of true equality. Mona further shows how this faulty understanding of sexual identity gave rise to disastrous understandings of sexual relationships with the sexual revolution giving birth to the hookup culture, abortion, the erosion of marriage and family, and an attack on motherhood. How we got into this mess and how to get out of it are some of the main themes of Mona's new book, which she is here today with us to discuss. Among her many credentials and accomplishments, Mona is the mother of three sons and the wife of one husband. So far. (laughs) The author of two, so far, but with this book perhaps three, New York Times bestsellers, Mona was a speechwriter to First Lady Nancy Reagan and to Jack Kempt. Her syndicated column began running in 1987. And she is currently a senior fellow at the DC think tank I Most Admire, after the Heritage Foundation, of course, (laughs) the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mona will be interviewed by Catherine Lopez, who needs no introduction. Uh, Kalo, as she's known to her many readers at the corner, is a prolific writer and speaker, the editor-at-large of National Review Online, and a fellow at the National Review Institute. Perhaps most important of all, though, uh, Catherine is a member of the Heritage family. Uh, She got her professional start in life here at the Heritage Foundation as an intern in our government relations department. And so it's a pleasure to welcome Catherine back to the Heritage Foundation and to be co-sponsoring this event with the National Review Institute. Please join me in welcoming both Mona and Catherine.
2: When I interned at the Heritage Foundation, it didn't like own the block. <laughs> it was much smaller. Um, so it, it it's a vague memory um at this point. I am so excited to be here today because I've admired Mona um forever. <laughs> and um I, I always loved watching you on Capital Gang back in the day. You and you were on Saturday night, Kate was Kate O'Byrne, our 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 late friend, was well you, you were on Sunday night, Kate was on Saturday night. And so we always had a voice of reason <laughs> um on on the panel, which I always appreciated. Um it's so wonderful to see so many friendly faces, so many um people who I admire who do uh important work here in town. So thank you for coming. Um I love this book. Um, I, I was excited when Mona first told me that she was writing this book, um, and then when I started reading it, I had no idea how practical it would be, which is why it's so exciting. We always have policy discussions, which are very important, um, in in these kind of rooms at Heritage, um, but um, but this is super practical. And I just want to read a, a, just a tiny bit from from Mona's book because I think. It it gets to the heart of why we wanted to have this conversation today, Um, why Ryan was kind enough to to co-host here. Um, Mona writes, our culture has misled young men and women about some of the most important ingredients for human happiness and thriving. Getting the basics of life right is not difficult, though it does require discarding some pervasive myths. The most consequential is that men and women are completely alike, except for obvious anatomical differences. This is false, and imagining it to be true leads to trouble, as all deceit does. We've convinced an entire generation, at least those with lower levels of education, that marriage is optional for parents. Among high school graduates and those with only some college, marriage is rapidly becoming the exception rather than the rule. Yet highly educated people who, never, who would never consider having children without marrying first, shrink from recommending to others that the altar should precede the nursery. Feminists often speak in terms of power. Everything that is desirable is said to be empowering. Women are encouraged to seize power everywhere from the classroom to the boardroom, and women have been responding. They are outperforming men in school and in many workplaces. Women now hold a majority of managerial positions in the workforce. Yet another kind of power that women heedlessly tossed aside 40 years ago was sexual power. The results of that forfeiture are rarely acknowledged. Among the well-educated elites, women must search for love and commitment among a population of young men who have ready access to sex and less incentive than in previous decades to choose monogamy. Among the less well-educated after several decades of family decline, young men often come from single-parent homes. This makes them less likely to secure educations and good jobs, and that in turn makes them less attractive as husbands. Nor do they grow up with role models of responsible fatherhood. I wanted to read that because this book comes from such a place of love. Um you You talk about how you are you are happy and you want other people to be able to be happy. And those paragraphs just just overflow with with love and sadness for, for people who have been wronged. Um well first let me
3: say that uh, she has a way with words. I like
2: that. She does.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> she sure does. Um, <laughs> um, Look, I I knew um, that I was going to be accused of um, being against women because I'm against a lot of what feminism has done and because I'm identifying feminism's errors. But it does not come out of any hostility to women or men. It comes out of a feeling, as you say, of love, of wanting people to thrive and to be able to have the most secure and happy lives that they can. And I think that... There are so many aspects of American life um, that are getting blamed for the social problems that we have. We've seen um, a focus on, well, the decline of manufacturing jobs or nutrition or a variety of other things. Whereas in many instances, I think that the answer to why people are struggling and people are not as happy as they could be is that they lack the most basic and fundamental building blocks of life, which is a stable, happy family that gives every child what they need um, right from the get go. And it isn't a matter of wealth or poverty. Every baby that comes into the world needs certain basic things. And you know, thousands of years of civilization, in addition to copious amounts of social science data, show that those things that babies need are best delivered by two married parents.
2: How do you, you talk about the deceit and, and how it's it's not actually that hard if, if you are truthful with people, but how how do you be truthful? And I ask this because you model this in the, in the book um, to a great extent. How, how do you do this in um, a culture that's so confused and right. is all about deceit in so many ways? Um, not, not. It, uh, with the best of intentions um, in many cases.
3: but um, Yeah, sometimes it's not with the best of intentions. Um, you know, I have a whole chapter about um, sex differences, which I call Vive la Difference. But, um, but, you know, there's been so much science, not just social science, but hard science that has come out in the 60 years since, um, roughly 60 years since Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique. Um, about the profound differences between men and women in our biology and the way we respond to medicines, in our brain organization, in our choices that are influenced by biology. And feminists are very afraid of this uh, data. They're afraid that people will, as they used to in you know the the early 20th century and in the 19th century and certainly long before – People would notice these differences and say, "Aha! You know, men are superior to women. Women aren't as intelligent. They can't handle, you know, abstract reasoning. Um, they're good only for taking care of babies and uh, and and seeing to the housework." So I understand where the feminist um, resistance to dealing with the science comes from, but as they would probably be the first to point out when it comes to say climate change. Um, the science is what it is, and you can't say that because it's uncongenial, you don't want to deal with it. Further, I think we are mature enough and able enough at this point in our, in our societal evolution to be able to handle it and say, yeah, um, it does happen to be the case that women have better senses of smell and hearing than men. You know, it's just a fact, okay? And men, I'm sorry if anybody's shocked, this is a trigger warning, Men are bigger and stronger (laughs) than women. Um, Not only that, they tend to excel more at, now I am getting into treacherous territory. They do tend to excel more than women at high-end math and science. Sorry, it's just a case. It's just a reality. doesn't mean there are no women up there at the upper, upper ends of science and math. And this is what got um, Larry Summers fired from Harvard when he sort of hinted at this. But um, but yeah, they're they, at the very upper end of scientific math ability, um, men outnumber women about 13 to one. Doesn't mean there are no women up there. It just means there are fewer. Similarly, at the lower end of the scale, there are many more men with disabilities, um, mental retardation, ADHD, stuttering, all kinds of things afflict men more than women. So women tend to cluster more in the um, center of the bell curve, and men tend to be spread out more at the tails. And, you know, this is reality. And so the feminists who say that everything is socially constructed are not dealing with the science. And so I, it was really important to me to put this in the in a chapter and say, don't be afraid. It's okay. We can handle it.
2: Well, as I was reading about um, you talking about the the... the the reality behind the the so-called pay gap i saw the new yorker has has a go. cover this week about how how to close the gender pay gap now you make the point in the book that that the truth will never fully be out there because it's just, just sort of impossible to have a conversation about it um why do you, why do you try anyway well i yeah i <laughs>
3: I called it the Rasputin of statistics with 77 cents on the dollar. You know, you can stab it, you can garret it, you can, but you can't kill it. Um, <clears throat> uh, the fact is, of course, the only way you get that number is by comparing the wages of all men and all women. And that's a meaningless um, comparison and so on and so forth. So I, I took a little bit of pleasure in sex matters in... Um, Quoting the New York Times, the Upshot column, which follows social trends, and they were very clear about the fact that the pay gap does not show up when young men and women are starting out in their careers, when they have the same training, same education, same skills, they're paid pretty much equally. There's a tiny gap, um, but it's negligible. Uh, But it does really show up as women get into their late 20s and into their 30s and they start having kids because they cut back at work cut back on their hours, and they take fewer promotions, and they do that. Now, that is something that we treat in our society as a problem, and as women are the losers. Women are getting, I quoted this professor at Wellesley, women are getting the short end of the stick. And as somebody who cut back herself uh, when my children were young and chose to do it very happily and wouldn't, frankly, have had it any other way, Um, if my husband had said, and I don't, I have no objection to couples where the husband wants to be the house husband and the woman wants to be the breadwinner, fine, uh, as long as somebody's with the kids. But, um, but in my case, and I think in many people's cases, if my husband had said, you, you continue with your work, I'll be the house husband and take care of the kids, I would have said, well, no, I actually want to do that, (laughs) you know, and I liked having that choice. Um... So the, um, the pay gap is not a real thing that needs to distress us. Um, it is what, what should distress us. Because usually this is the topic about, you know, the upper third of our society, people with college degrees or beyond, who are making work-life balance trade-offs about how much they want to work, how much they want to cut back when their kids are young. They're going to they're gonna be fine. They're going to solve their problems. Their kids are going to be fine. They tend to get married, stay married, this cohort in our society. Um, The worrisome piece is the other people in our society, the less educated, who are not getting married and are having kids and are having multiple partners. And the United States has the dubious distinction now of leading the world in chaotic adult relationships. So... You can look at comparisons with, say, Europe, and you can see that um, you know, in some countries, you'll get even lower, and Ryan probably knows this really by heart, but um, you know, you'll see even lower marriage uh, rates than in some parts of the US. But in point of fact, though they don't marry, they do stay together. And um, it tends to be that the mother and father of that child are a family unit, even if they don't have a formal marriage. And in this, in this country, that is not the case. There is a tremendous amount of breakup that happens. People are quicker to form relationships and quicker to end them. Unfortunately, they also are having children this whole time. So it's very common to have kids with two different fathers, same mother. And by the way, this is something that characterizes every ethnic group in America. This is not something it used to be considered a, a you know problem for, for blacks, for inner city kids, no longer. Um, this is now universal in America. And it is really difficult for those kids and for the parents, uh, usually the mothers. Um, and it is, I submit and I think I provide a lot of evidence in the book, that, um, that this um, bifurcation of family formation is at the heart of a lot of the rising inequality that we're seeing in America. So
2: how do we help them? How do we help that situation?
3: So it requires a change of mores, um, not a change of laws so much. I mean, there might be some laws that could be fiddled with. But we have had tremendous social changes in the society. And um, many, of them, many of the reform movements in our society have been led by women. Um, the um, the temperance movement was almost completely run by women. Some people may say that that went overboard. And it was an experiment, a noble experiment that didn't work out well. But it was well intended. I mean, the women who started it were very, very concerned about the damage that alcohol was doing. Um, and alcohol, by the way, in those days, was much, much it was much more abused, um, believe it or not, than it is today. <clears throat> But, um, but there, were, there were plenty of other uh, movements in American history. The abolitionist movement, heavily female-led, um, many others. And um, so we have examples, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, where through social pressure and agitation and an effort to change social mores, they were able to change our society. It used to be considered funny. You know, to be grabbing your car keys while very drunk. I can remember comedians making jokes about it before the um, mad mothers um, began to agitate on the subject. Um, it's now they were they have been successful in cutting um, highway deaths from drunk driving in half. Um, we had a huge campaign in America to um, to reduce teen pregnancy. And that was tremendously successful. We had celebrities signing on to it. We had public service announcements. We had influential opinion makers um, weighing in to discourage this. And there was a show on HBO, I think, called 16 and Pregnant that was apparently very influential. If we had a similar consensus in, in our society that encouraging marriage was key to helping poor and middle-class people lead happier and healthier lives, um, it might make a difference. Right now, the ethic in America is don't judge. Mm. Don't judge. That is what people know means to be a good person. It's like, well, I personally don't believe in murder, but I'm not going to tell anybody else what to do. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's... That's a limitation of our times, I think. And um, if you really do want people to, um, to be able to flourish, then you have to wish for them what you believe is best. And what's best for them is security. Look, the people at the top end are getting it, right? They're getting all that security. They're getting all that enrichment from having these intact families. Um, let me just give you a few little examples of things that a kid who grows up with a father and a mother at home gets that other kids don't. So uh, one thing I was just mentioning to my friend Betsy Hart, who's here, it was um, girls who, live, who grow up with their biological father reach puberty later than girls who grow up with their mother and an unrelated adult in the household, which is weird and interesting. And we don't quite understand it, but there it is. Um, Boys who grow up without their fathers uh, and who don't get the rough housing that fathers just naturally do with their toddlers um, have more trouble when they reach adolescence or older childhood and then adolescence with self-control, with anger management, all kinds of things that are critical to passing through adolescence in a healthy way. It seems that, and you know, there are all these things that parents do sort of without really thinking about why they're doing it. They just do it naturally. But then it turns out when you take the the key parent out of the picture, you realize how much that contributes. One more thing. Um, Teenage girls who grow up without their dads have much lower self-esteem and are much less assertive and confident than girls who grow up with their fathers. And, you know, so so. For us as a society to constantly be saying, well, the only thing that matters is love. You know, if you have love, then that's all that matters, but it's really not. I mean, love is great, love is essential, but it is also important to um, encourage people to give their kids security, to ideally have the child raised by the two parents who are. Uh, their biological parents. Now, as an adoptive parent, I would just quickly add that that's not everything. Um, you know, and there are all kinds of ways to form families that are fantastic. Um, but in general, just being at peace with nature, right? This is the way we are. We do care more about those closest to us. One more thing, and I'll be quiet. There's a. There's we a don't want you to. <laughs> that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Come here all the time. Um, there's, a, um, there's a section in the book where I quote these women who um, have, uh, they have their kids in a play group and they're all single mothers. And they were asked by the Washington Post, you know, what their plans were, their kids were, you know, two, three-year-olds. And one of them was saying about the father of her child. She said, well, he's a really great guy and everything. And he's a great dad, but he's just not right for me. And she thinks she's going to find somebody else to marry who will be just perfect for her and will be a great dad for her child. And, you know, that's, that may work out for her, okay? But the chances are, nature being what it is, and somebody should have told her this, <laughs> that the biological father of that child has a much better shot at being a good dad to him than a stranger. That's just the way we're made. And you can't just sort of interchangeably switch people in and out of those roles and think that you're not going to pay a price you will there's a price to be paid
2: um you you do talk about in the in the book how just saying family is love isn't enough duty responsibility are parts of the picture Stability. too how do how How do we talk about these things though and not sound like well, conservatives, you know, sounds schoolmarmish. And how do you do being at peace with nature when, you know, we're obviously dealing with a culture where we're talking about gender change at young ages and um, all these really painful roads that that people are going down with their children. Um, Is it realistic that we can even have this Conversation beyond a, a room at the Heritage Foundation.
3: Well, it is not easy um, to discuss things like the transgender movement and um, uh, and efforts to deny that there are differences between men and women. Um, and, uh, Ryan's written a whole book about the transgender uh, moment. Um, but um, look... Uh, one of the things that I tried to do in this book is look back at history. And um, I tell the story um, of a really awful case where, um, and I won't go into all the details, but there was a case um, back in the uh, 1970s of a little boy who had a botched circumcision and the surgeon accidentally basically removed the child's whole penis and as a baby. And so the distraught, and he happened to be an, uh, an identical twin. It was He had a brother. And um, the parents, not knowing what to do, turned to a doctor called Money, Dr. John Money, who recommended, who believed he's the one who started the idea of gender identity. And he believed that everything was socially constructed, that boys were boys because we raised them to be, and girls were girls, same reason. And he said, it's fine, we will um, operate on this little boy and make a simulacrum of a vagina and we'll you'll raise him as a girl and it'll be fine. And at the time, people believed that. They believed that, that everything was completely within our control, totally mutable. And I, I quote, you know, stories that, that he was, uh, he presented this little um, girl at um, Scientific conferences when she was about eight. And and the New York Times celebrated this as an example of how um, a um, that the feminists were right, they said, um, that there really weren't any differences that were not the result of upbringing. And then, of course, the the, the sad end to the story is that this child was miserable, um, had always felt like a boy, always insisted it th- tore off frilly dresses, um, insisted on urinating, standing up. Um, And when he was an adolescent, he told his parents that that he was ready to commit suicide. And um, the parents told him the truth. And then he had other surgeries to um, change him back into a boy. Anyway, the whole story is very, very tragic. Um, But it just shows that, um, uh, you know, as Horace, uh, the, the... Roman poet said, "You can drive nature out with a fit, with a pitchfork, but she will still hurry back." And uh, you know, the um, the effort to um, deny nature just leads to unnecessary suffering, and it also um, denies great pleasures. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to convey is how lucky we are to be living at this time and in this unbelievably prosperous place, where we have, first of all, the 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 luxury of long lives. So what young women ask me, um, you know, how do you have it all? And I always say, well, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. And you know, we have long lives. You can take time to be a parent, and you know, or you know, I, as I did most mothers like to the plurality of mothers choose part-time work when their kids are young but it's such a great privilege and and joy to raise children this is like the stuff of life and um it it just brings so much happiness i mean all the one of the things about the feminists was that they they had no love for motherhood or for family life or for the great um rewards of being able to raise your own children and I think we need to reaffirm how important that is. Um, the feminists are constantly saying, how much time are you taking off from work? And, you know, and that subtracts from your lifetime earnings. And therefore, you're the loser. Well, first of all, I never felt like a loser. Most women don't feel like losers. It's in the book. Most women who cut back and have, have made uh, uh, so-called sacrifices in their careers. Are happy with their decisions and feel good about them. Um, most of them are able after their kids are grown or in school most of the day to go back to work or you know uh, increase their amount of work if they were working already. Um, and um, and finally, when a parent and it can be a father, but as long as, when a parent is there to help a kid who is struggling with math or you know, another kid who doesn't fit in socially in school, or you know, has a learning disability, or whatever it is, um, health problems. I had two two kids with health problems. Um, it makes those children much happier and healthier. It makes the family happier and healthier, the community happier and healthier. And so, um, who's to say that uh, that the women are the losers? I mean, we are all connected to one another. We men and women and we all have you know we all have parents we all have you know fathers brothers husbands sons um, and and that's another thing that i i think um, we so need to respond to feminism about which is this tendency to say how well are women doing and how well are men doing and measure them separately and you really can't do that you have to say well Women are getting 60% of the undergraduate degrees in universities today. That may be good for women in the sense that they get the degrees, but it's not so good if men are falling far behind, even for women. Because who are, they, who are those women going to find to marry? You know? and that's, So we are connected, and we cannot see our, our um, success as being at the expense of one another or, um, or separate from one another.
2: And we really do such a disservice to women, don't we, when we we raise them to believe, especially in our education system, that that job is – your most important job is to be a syndicated columnist and a bestselling right. author. Right. When in reality, the most important job is being a mother and, and fathers deserve – men deserve – um, to know that we need them to be fathers.
3: Exactly, exactly. And that's why I went into some detail about the special elixir that men bring to parenting, uh, because there's been a devaluing of fatherhood in our society. <clears throat> I think we, we only recognize how great motherhood is when it's single motherhood. You know, mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. then we're full of praise for single mothers and how, how hard they have it and, and what a great job they do. And, and usually they do. But I have to tell you, um, it's really yourself, hard. It's really hard. And, and the accounts of the lives they lead and how they are always feeling so stressed. And I can't imagine how it would have been to, to, to be a mother without a husband. It, it, it's, it's hard enough when you do a husband. Yeah. It. It's very, very difficult. And they feel like they are you know one accident, one illness, one lost job away from disaster all the time. So, um that is definitely less than ideal.
2: Um, you celebrating motherhood uh, we absolutely have to do more of, including birth motherhood. Um, you mentioned yes. adoption can you can you talk about uh, first of all, birth mothers are probably the most underappreciated asset heroes um absolutely. in in our culture um, and and to know that that so many of them carry shame and guilt and uh, um, is, I think, a, a pro-life challenge. You know, people it who is. call themselves pro-life need to step up to the plate more and and, and talk more about and do more about.
3: Absolutely. Um, you know, you see interviews with um, women who are struggling with the, and, you know, unplanned pregnancy. And it, when the thought of adoption is presented to them, they say, well, I could never do that to my child. And but they could. Do an abortion, sure. and you know they really need to hear about all of the happy children, including my oldest, um, who you know have loving families just waiting for them, and um, that the the most selfless and loving act is to give that baby to a family that either is infertile or wants more, ch- you know, wants more children. Um, the birth mother gets to decide. Um, she gets to read the biographies of all of these families and make a decision for herself. Some people do open adoptions where they maintain a relationship. Some people do confidential adoptions. But there are many different ways to do it. Um, and, uh, and it is the most loving and selfless thing. And they are really heroic, um, the birth mothers who do this. It's never easy. But by the way, it's never easy to abort either. And so, um, yeah, I do, think, I do think we need a lot more attention to, uh, to those great women. And so you have a wonderful adoption story. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So our first son, uh, Jonathan, uh, we adopted. And um, we, um, you know, we, I wasn't pregnant. We didn't know what to expect. Um, and so we brought him home. And I um, sort of continued my normal life, or I thought I was. I was continuing. uh, So we had a a nanny come in five mornings a week, and she would take care of him. And I would do my syndicated column thing and my speeches and all the rest of the things that were part of my life at the time. And um, like a few weeks into his life, and we got him when he was three weeks old. One morning, I was giving a speech at Georgetown um, to the Young Democrats, actually, mm-hmm. and, um, and I went to get my son up, and I was, you know, he was, seemed kind of passive, and I, and I was playing with him, peekaboo, and doing that, and he was still kind of like not that, you know, responsive, and then the nanny showed up, and he lit up. And my heart sank, and I just realized, oh my gosh, this is unacceptable. (laughs) No, this is my child. I have to be number one. That was the end of the nanny. (laughs) We gave her three weeks' notice, but it was over. Um, And uh, I realized, you know, that everything depended, especially because he was adopted, everything depended on care, and our whole relationship rested upon who was going to be there for him and um as i say in the book only later when i had two children the old fashioned way did i realize that that's true of all babies you know it's who takes care of you i mean the biological tie is not what does it i mean it's it's who takes care of you and um so that was uh that was our adoption story <laughs> Well, I um
2: I know your son Ben a little bit because you brought him on a National Review cruiser too. Yeah. And you know, I know you 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 write beautiful columns and you have wonderful books and this is a wonderful book, but that kid is a masterpiece. <laughs> Congratulations. Well,
3: thank you very much. Oh, gosh. I'm blushing. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully he's not watching. You yeah, know, right. <laughs> we'll have to make sure of that. Right. Not let this out of the room.
2: <laughs> um, well, w- with that, I, I know that people in the audience in this room is packed, which is so exciting, um, probably have questions. So Monica has a has a microphone over here. So of course the questions would be on this side of the room. <laughs> oh, okay. I think right up
0: here. You're talking about how in the United States we had the dysfunctional adult relationships that resulted in kids being conceived in poverty and things like that. And in Europe, they have far less of that. My question is, do you support effective family planning and birth control programs to, re- to reduce instead of reproduce poverty in this country, uh, you know, and uh, do, do you support Trump's uh, plan to cut way back on the family planning and birth control programs in this country and, 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 and the Mexico City rule abroad that that uh, per- prohibits, you know, family planning and birth co- control aid to groups that are pro-choice on abortion, even if it means uh, reducing the, 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 the number of uh, un- unaccompanied minors and uh, anchor babies that want to try to get across the border here
3: Right,
2: thank Do you, you. See what thank I'm saying you. Sure. Uh, Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, uh, I, why or why not thank you okay
3: um I I would be for you know more family planning spending if I thought it would work but there's been um abundant evidence over the last several decades that um most of the people who have babies are not it's not the result of a failure to obtain birth control it's not the result of a failure to uh, understand how birth control works, it's because they want the babies. And um, so it's a really, it's, it's a much more psychologically subtle problem than it is a technological one. And um, I think we just have to um, change the mores, change the expectations about the circumstances in which it's okay to have a baby and make sure that more people behave in our society the way the upper third, who are the college-educated, do, um, and, and that they have the same um, expectations about this, what sociologists are now calling the success sequence. The success sequence is you finish high school, you get a job, any job, you get married before you have your first child, and your chances of living in poverty are practically nil in America. Very low.
2: One of the reasons I'm uh, I love your book is because um, we were talking about this earlier um, before we started the event. You know, everyone, but both both of us, I think I, I can say, have been political geeks all, all our lives. You know, watching C-SPAN at odd hours and that kind of thing. <laughs> And for all my life, I've wanted people to pay more attention to politics. Right. And now they are. Right. And I, I, my response is, could you please get a life? There are more important <laughs> things to talk about than politics. I can't take an Uber ride without talking about um what's going on in Washington um, today. And um, but part and we joke about that. But part, part of um, part of the reason I say that is because people have a heck of a lot more power to change the culture and, and the mores and um then they realize yeah. and it's by making choices and and being happy and and modeling that and encouraging others in that and mentoring others in that um and i i just think we don't appreciate
3: that anymore right and and um you know there's that famous line about um, nobody ever on their deathbed lies there and and regrets having not spent more time at the office mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And, and so it's important. I've always liked, uh, as I've gone through my life to try to look at it through the other end of the telescope, to try to say, you know, instead of like, um, like what's in my future, but to say, let's, let's imagine I'm already at the end and I'm looking mm. back, how would I want to be doing this part? And, um, it's, you know, I, I can just say that the decisions that I made to, Cut back on my career. You know that, like I could have been a real star. Okay, I just, I, I'm just <laughs> want you to know that. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, made I hate to break it to you, you were star. But I made choices that, yes, involved um, being less public for a while and cutting back, and you know, being at home. It, dare I say it? Baking cookies. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, and I'm really happy with those decisions. And most women feel the same way. Um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, something like uh, there was a 2016 UGov poll that found that only uh, 16% of um, Americans identified themselves as feminists. It was slightly higher among women. I think it was like 26%, but that's not very high. Um, and it's because feminists are perceived as being too extreme. I mean, pretty much ev- almost everybody who is a reasonable person in America believes in the equality of the sexes and believes that people should have choices. And of course, if you don't want a family, great, you know, don't do don't do do not it. Um, and if you want to work hard and if you want your husband to stay home, I mean, I'm for all of those freedoms and choices, and most Americans are. But what they resent is the enmity that feminism introduced between men and women, um, the the sort of coercive, um, totalitarian style that they have of forcing an androgynous utopia on us and insisting that women's lives have to look exactly like men's lives. And until that happens, it's not fair. I mean, uh, Sheryl Sandberg uh, said in her book Lean In that she thinks it will be a better world when Women run 50% of the companies and countries, and men run half of the households. And my feeling is, well, if that's what people want, okay, but I have good reason to suspect that's not what people truly want. So I don't want to impose it on them. (laughs) Another question?
2: Maybe here in the front. Thank you, Romina Baccia with the Heritage Foundation. Do you think that the uh, that federal or state governments have a role to play in supporting families with policies such as uh, paid family leave, for example, um, or or similar kinds of approaches?
3: Um, in uh, in his really interesting and good book, Our Kids, uh, Robert Putnam closes with a series of. Um, suggestions. I can almost imagine having written a book myself that the editor said, okay, so you need to have 10 solutions in your final chapter. You know, you've laid out the problem. I actually think the solutions are less convincing. Um, You know, he talks about wraparound social services and um, all kinds of programs to help single parents and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I have a couple of worries about that. First of all, Our experience with government attempting to do good have not been encouraging. Um, Government does a very bad job of educating our children. And it does a very bad job of providing health care to the poor. And it does a bad job of policing bad neighborhoods. I mean, there are a lot of things that government just isn't all that good at. So I'm not so convinced that government is um, able to really help us raise our children. Uh, By the way, there's a whole section in my book about universal preschool. Very skeptical about that. I would prefer to see uh, – oh, and the other aspect of government stepping in is that whenever government steps in, it uh, displaces someone who would be doing that role, in many cases the father of that child um, or the mother of that child who uh, would do uh, – who who is therefore made even more unnecessary by the state stepping in. So I'm skeptical about those things, but I am um, enthusiastic about private sector uh, efforts to come up with solutions. I cite some of them in the book. Programs that are run through ch- churches, community groups, synagogues, where people are given uh, parenting advice, people are given relationship counseling uh, to help keep marriages together, um, things along those lines. Uh, you know, uh, classes to help uh, single mothers manage their finances. All kinds of things like that. That um, that really should be a big push, uh, it w- run by the private sector, and there's one final reason it's better to run it through the private sector, and it's this. When government programs become institutionalized, they get a constituency, and it's practically impossible to end them if they're not working, whereas private sector initiatives can be much more flexible and can respond to surveys or data showing they're either working or not working, and they can switch course.
2: I... Um- was at an event with Robert Putnam when that book came out with his wife. It was a dinner. And um, I realized the most important thing about Robert Putnam may be his wife who (laughs) makes a point of mentoring um, single moms um, lower income single moms um and it's just sort of like the air she breathes and i think Ro- robert putnam would say, say what i just said about her, her being the most because yeah. she was almost his credibility you know like he um he, he makes the arguments he he makes but he also has an appreciation for for civil society I, like i think the two of you would have a very interesting conversation um because so much of that book was about community life it was and and um and and how how important that is and i often think that as conservatives, you know, people just don't believe that we're credible. One conversation I had with Putnam was about Pope Francis and how he he thought, and that's a whole another conversation for another event. Um, but but there's something about Pope Francis he said where people were responding to him because you actually sort of think that he might believe the beatitudes, and we need the beatitudes because people who will be self-sacrificial and help out their neighbor. Or, who we need it, 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 for our republic to function, um, and it, it, I guess it goes back to the birth moms conversation to to know that there are people who are self self sacrificial, and that love is something more than you know what what we often
3: say it is in pop culture. And, you know, just on that point, I do hope for some you know sort of across the aisle conversations to develop because. Um, for example, I heard a really great interview with a, um, a black guy who worked for the Barack Obama uh, White House, or maybe he was at HHS. I, I'm not sure, but he told a moving story about himself that he uh, had been raised without a father, but that um, a uh, an uncle or or a coach or somebody, some male figure in his life, had stepped in and mentored him, and how much that had meant. He said it was it was it meant everything. It had changed his life, and so he has founded an organization kind of like Big Brothers, but it helps uh, give male role models and guidance to kids who are growing up without fathers. And that's exactly the kind of thing where I think we can have a meeting of the minds across the aisle.
2: Um, Maybe over here, Monica. My name is Milton Sanchez. I work in the mental health field. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for teenagers between 14 and 24 years old. Um, you mentioned a lot of protective factors for a family for a child, so the question is why do you think society is is instead of choosing these protective factors is accepting these these kind of ideologies that are affecting our families and of course in the long term our youth our our young our teenagers our people
3: well we um yeah since you mentioned the suicide rates uh, uh through doing the research on this book, I found that the um, rate of suicide is closely tied to the divorce rate. Uh, more divorce equals more youth suicide. It's uh, pretty grim, uh, and um, the uh, it, and of course there's also the problem of um, diseases of despair that are now causing a declining life expectancy for um, people with, uh, for for middle class people. Um, so why has our society accepted all of this? Well, you know, that's, that's the reason that I wrote the book is that we've, we've decided to believe a few myths, um, about the nature of, of human beings, about the nature of men and women, about, uh, the importance of our loves versus our careers. And, uh, we've gotten the balance off kilter and it's not hopeless. We can get it back. We've made reforms in other areas. Um, there's a little bit of ice Cracking that you can see on the left where they are beginning to not deny any longer that family structure is really important and um, So we just we just need to um, recognize that we made a we made a mistake in in saying that families don't matter and that uh, it's all about individualism it, it, we, we are uh, we are creatures of families and clans and tribes and groups maybe a little too much tribalism right now but that's another subject for another panel um but uh, but certainly the family is the um, is the essential first building block of a good society
2: and am i crazy to think that i mean there's a huge opportunity right now in the fact that people feel overwhelmed and confused and and um and and we have a duty, which is, I think, why you wrote this book, to, to speak into that and help people
3: along. Right. Um, one of the things that struck me when I was um, listening to the uh, Me Too uh, stories um, is that, first of all, the there's absolutely no reason for any conservative anywhere to say that this isn't real or that this isn't a serious problem. I mean, there are, because of the sexual revolution and the feminist revolutions, we've empowered a lot of men to act like pigs. And they're doing it. And there's no sense denying that. They really are. And um, But one of the things that struck me is I, I feel so for these young women who come into the work situation, and all of the rules about how people are expected to behave have been swept away. And so there really aren't any guideposts, and they don't really know what they can demand or what they should accept as normal. And um, it was, you know, I I have to say that when I was a young woman, which was back in the 70s and 80s, um, I did get sexually harassed but it was so polite compared to what happens now. I mean, you know, um, it's just, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, for, for a young woman, um, not, to, not to be sure whether she should be expected to go and meet her boss in a hotel room, uh, you know, that's sad, right? I mean, we, we ought to make it very clear that that's beyond the bounds of civilized behavior.
2: Ryan Anderson has a question.
1: So I guess you you could call this moderating from behind. <laughs> um, so uh, this follows right up on what you just said. What what can men do? What should men do? Mm. Uh, the subtitle of the book mentions the word feminism, uh, but I imagine there's a role for men in this as well.
3: Absolutely, um, men uh, need to um, remind the world that. When they are gentlemen, when they shoulder their responsibilities, um, when they are the protectors of women and not the abusers of women, they are worthy of the greatest respect and the greatest honor. Uh, When they fail to do those things, when they take advantage of women, when they um, don't support their children, uh, when they don't work, Uh, and by the way, there's a strong link between joblessness and non-marriage. Husbands, even, I love this statistic, even husbands who have only a high school diploma are more likely to be gainfully employed if they are married than are single men who have some college under their belts. Um, It's like the wife says, get out there, (laughs) and they go. Um, But... um, But men, yeah, men need to rediscover and and they, it's, so it's, I'm sympathetic to the men who grow grow up without any guidance, right? I mean, it's not really their fault. It really has to, it's a circle. The men have to be raised by good men and women who teach them what it means to be a solid citizen. I use the Yiddish word mensch in the book. I'm Jewish. A mensch, literally it means man but that's not what it means. It means an upright, righteous person, a reliable, honest person. And that's what you teach every son to become. That's what his parents teach him. It's what his relatives, his extended family, his grandparents, it's what he learns from the other people in the community. And of course, the same for women. And, um, but for men, it's even more important because they are the less civilized sex. (laughs) They're the ones who need to be raised to be uh, good with a little bit more effort uh, because they're a little rambunctious and they're a little uh, more prone to, well, a lot more prone to violence and um, a lot less attached to their children than women are. Doesn't mean they're not attached, but experience shows that it's very, very, very difficult to separate a woman from her child. It's not that hard to separate a man from his child. And so you need lots of social reinforcement for men to do what is best for everyone. What's best for everyone? Stay loyal to their wives. Take care of their children. uh, Be good role models of responsible masculinity.
2: Well, with that, I'm sorry we have to wrap things up. Um, thank you, Brian, for being a gentleman and, and for going a seat as well as hosting us today. Thank you to the Heritage Foundation and the National Review Institute for hosting this. And thank you most especially for Mona for, for being here, for having this book. Um, and, uh, and thank you. Thank we, you. We need it right now. So. <laughs> Here
3: also... Okay, um, does, is somebody going to bring the books or the people are going to be so told where to get right them?
1: So outside, so I'll be going out there and directing them if they buy copies.
3: To come Great. In. Terrific. Thanks. Hi. Oh, no, it's okay. How are things going? Yeah, yeah. Good. You're sorry?